0: Hi everyone and welcome to ABCs of Anesthesia and you know I feel like every time I do a different kind of episode there's just so many different things that we can talk about in 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 this podcast and YouTube format but so today I've got Max Green soon to be Dr. Max Um, and Max contacted me uh, you know maybe a month ago or so because you were about to sit this anesthetic prize exam with the University of Tasmania um, so, yeah, welcome, Max. Thanks for coming along to this podcast. Um, yeah, can you tell us about um, where you're at in medicine? Why did you contact me and how all that came about?
1: Yeah, thanks for having me. Um, so, in terms of where I'm at in medicine, my name's Max Green. I'm a final year medical student at the University of Tasmania um, up at their rural clinical school based out of Burnie. Um, and yeah, I contacted, uh, the ABCs of Anesthesia podcast. I've been listening to some episodes sort of in the lead up to that prize exam around sort of drugs and how to approach things and found them really helpful. So I reached out and just to see if there was any advice. And yeah, that's how this has sort of all come
0: about. Awesome. And I, and I think that's really cool because I've never, I'm obviously I've started this podcast a couple of years ago and uh, with Kaz and, uh, you know, we, we every time there's a new opportunity and how we can, talk about some level of education a, a you know medical student or specialist or whatever and so maybe the audience would, would be wondering maybe they're medical students out there like if they want to be eligible for a prize exam in you know in medicine medical school like how does that even come about
1: yeah for sure so i can talk about how it works for us in our uni uh, so we had um the opportunity to sort of sign up for these exams so you elect at the end of having sat all of your normal exams that I'd like the opportunity to sit a prize exam. Mm -hmm. We sat in MCQ, uh, went for about an hour, and then they took the top three performances from the University of Tasmania, and And we all then
0: sat... That's the general medical MCQ, not an anaesthetic MCQ?
1: No, it was an anaesthetic MCQ.
0: Oh, so you choose to... Yeah. Okay, cool.
1: Yeah, no, so we signed up for a specific anaesthetic MCQ and then from that anaesthetic MCQ, they took the top three performers and then we sat a live Viva-type examination.
0: Which is the one you asked me about. Yeah. Now, and then just to give it perspective, how many people uh, opted for more pain and more (laughs) examination? It's really difficult to say. Um, There
1: were 10 or so at my clinical school and I'm not sure what it looked like. Around the state, but yeah, I think they had a reasonably good turnout. Everyone seems to really enjoy their anesthetic rotation.
0: Yeah, that's cool. So uh, this is definitely something like a lot of the specialty exams are very opt in and I, you know, you'd highly recommend that people have a go at these because it's not like you've got 200 people opting mm. to do these exams. You've got lower numbers. And if you do do well, like, you know, you came third in that and you're eligible for this, yeah, that's a really big stepping stone. If You can say you've got a prize at anything, which is already difficult in med school when you're amongst like some really brilliant academic performers, you kind of got to find these niches where your odds of winning are higher. And I, I think that's, that's really great that you put your hat in for that.
1: Yeah, absolutely. I would echo that for sure. If anyone ever gets the opportunity to sit these exams, the worst thing that's going to happen is you
0: go in and you might learn something at the end of the day. So I think it's well worth uh, pursuing it. Exactly. Um, hey, so maybe for this podcast, we'll take, you know, uh, who knows how long it's going to go, but let's say 30 minutes or so. I'll find out about what it was initially. Let's go, let's why don't we talk about what was it like in the Viber? Not the questions itself, but you know, what was the vibe of it? How many examiners? What you know, how was it friendly? Was it conversational? Very much question, question, question. Yeah.
1: So the Viber was sat over Zoom uh, with two consultants from uh hospitals in the region. Um and it was Conversation based. So they gave us three clinical scenarios and then expanded on sort of the anesthetic concepts that those three scenarios brought up and asked questions based on what your sort of approach was to each of those scenarios.
0: Okay, cool. Um, and so this could be a really great learning opportunity. Now, Max, there's this is pretty good memory work from you. So you broadly remember what the, the stems were, the like the scenario and you've now written down some questions that you remember so it'll be maybe great so you you can ask me these questions as if i was the person sitting the exam uh and then i'll kind of talk to you about how i would answer it um generally speaking and hopefully that will be useful for anyone else who might come across these situations We've we've already gone through some of these kind of the overall questions already and i've got to say it's a fantastic spread of what would be required by any medical student and junior doctor in the anesthetic space so i think some of the stuff you mentioned was like pain management stuff, um, g- like general issues with um, a patient having an operation. So, you know, operative issues for a specific problem and then uh, doctors ABC stabilization of a sick patient, which is essentially covering a lot of the basics of what we'd like medical students and junior doctors to know.
1: Yeah, no, I think it was a really good spread and a good, fair sort of test of our knowledge and a good opportunity to present the things that we've learned on placement and might have researched leading up to it.
0: Yeah. Okay. Well let's, let's go. Uh, tell me what the situations were and yeah, ask me the, the questions and I'll, and I'll share with you how I think I approach, I would approach it as a specialist and aesthetist. An so the first scenario
1: centered around, um, a patient you're asked to see on your anesthetic rotation. So you're called to the ward, um, asked to assess a 78-year-old female patient who's been experiencing some pain. Um, She was admitted with a fractured neck of femur and she's currently waiting for theatre.
0: So that was the scenario. And before before you go on, as soon as I hear this scenario, I'm thinking three things. Obviously, pain management and it's an approach to that. And I'm thinking it's a trauma, you know, fracture of anything is a trauma. And has the trauma screen been done? And is the patient safe, kind of a sick patient assessment slash trauma screen? And I'm thinking, oh, fracture never femur, high mortality, palliative operation for penalty. So, uh, you know, relatively urgent 48 hour operation. Those three things are in my uh, things that I'm flagging already. Yeah, keep going.
1: Yeah. So the next thing that we sort of covered was how you'd go about assessing this patient for pain.
0: Yeah, cool. And so as soon as I see assessment of anything, I think either doctors A, B, C, D, if they're sick, and then history examination, investigations, if they're well, because there's going straight to asking about pain, I'd probably just go uh, assess from history, examination, investigations, what the pain's like. And this would be, you know, talking to the patient, so finding out the history of what had happened and then doing all the pain questions and not, not just the fractured femur, but also the rest of the body, are there any other sites of trauma and, you know, asking about you know, the, the sight, the radiation, the severity, the, um, you know, the number out of 10, the character, the periodicity, the onset, the offset, aggravating, relieving associated factors. And I get those out pretty quickly because they're easy to remember. And then I start looking at examination, you know, is this just the pain there or is it other problems with um, neuro, neuropathic pain, burning, cold, you know, sharp tingling sensations, uh, neurovascular compromise might be a thing um, in other fractures, maybe not so much in hips. Um and then investigation, so you'll always get a check. You always get an X ray of the site, and that then uh, would lead on to what is the best management of that pain. So that's probably how to assess, broadly speaking, uh, yeah, the assessment of pain in that patient. Is yeah, that sounds. No, that sounds really comprehensive.
1: Um, I suppose if you were asking the patient in real life, how would you actually sort of structure those questions? You mentioned sort of severity. Are there any particular scales or tools that you like to use when you're assessing a patient like this
0: yeah so essentially if they're english speaking and understanding i would say zero is no pain 10 is the worst pain what number are you and then i'd try to assess the improvement of that with various things and pain management and how it's progressed along um as well as function activity scores so you know Mm. can they do anything and in most fractured neck of phenophages they're bed bound they're in a lot of pain um especially if they move so i'm not really concerned about the fact that they're low function functional activity score of c is usually the case there um and then as i mentioned i'm really checking for the red flag stuff because unlike other pain this pain is known so you know mostly known so i just i'm really just confirming is it fractured neck of femur and is there any other bad stuff like neurovascular compromise or you know, did they have a pain syndrome that's now aggravated substantially or is the existing pain management not working and they're in a crisis pain situation, which I've got to add stuff to. This is all very advanced stuff, but, you know, it's not it's not that hard. It's a bit logical as well. So, you know, we're thinking about.
1: Yeah. So, once you've assessed this patient's pain, here how would you go about sort of providing some pain relief and what would be some considerations around that?
0: Yeah, fantastic. So, uh, um, and by the way, if you if definitely feel free to mention anything I've forgotten, because I'm just doing this on the fly, I'll probably forget some stuff, which is cool. You go, Oh, by the way, I, I added this that is yep. very useful for anyone who's listening and watching. Uh, yeah. So my approach to this would be firstly thinking that this patient is in a lot of pain uh, and may or may not have some at that age may need extra care, may not have the ability to maybe ask for pain relief or operate a PCA. So I'm, I'm thinking about that. I'm also thinking about the fact that they need an urgent operation for treating the pain as much as the fracture itself and my approach would be multimodal analgesia as well as knowing that this patient might need stronger opioids smaller doses of you know, oxycodone endone maybe morphine through a pca or fentanyl for a pca one milligram or 10 to 20 mics depending on the patient's wellness um, and even ketamine and a nerve block so often these patients get a fascia block or a femoral nerve block and that's just a mainstay as soon as they get into ed in my hospital they get this block and that really sorts them out and avoids all the problems of elderly patients having nar- you know, narcotics and the risk of sedation and respiratory depression uh, in patients that are very potentially very sensitive to it. So yep, parasemol, one one gram QID as a max dose, depending on the renal function, liver function. Uh non storials again, maybe a concern in the elderly. Tramadol, I'd watch what other se- act- serotonergically active drugs they're on, and then put give them a small dose, like 50 milligrams, TDS, depending on the size of this patient, um, oral IV, and then start them on a small dose of endone, 2.5 milligrams oral every two to three hours, again, titrating to how how um, depressed their respiration might get. But I'd have a low threshold for putting it, getting them on a PCA and even a small ketamine infusion if they've got uncontrollable pain, and I'm not able to put a fascia iliac in nerve block in. Yeah,
1: no, that sounds fantastic. So I suppose one thing that you mentioned was sort of NSAID use and query whether you'd use that in this patient or in the elderly at all. I think that's pretty good medical student sort of knowledge. So what are some things that you might consider when prescribing an NSAID?
0: Yeah, I, I just think of all the contraindications really. Mm. So lead risk for this case w- won't be a big deal. So I don't yeah. consider that a problem. Uh, definitely look at their renal function. Any renal function deterioration, I would not give NSAIDs. It's such a problem with acute renal failure that I just wouldn't. Uh, I then look for any problems with gastritis, sensitivity to it with asthma, um, and then, yeah, the coagulopathy stuff, um, uh, generally we talk about being cautious with selective COX-2 inhibitors, heart mm-hmm. disease. Um, so assuming that that's not a problem, I'll, I, I would, I would go ahead. So even after all of, let's say all of those things are negative, no asthma, no gastritis, no kidney problems, I'd still be cautious. Like I'd probably put them on a short course of it. Like maybe, you know, ibuprofen 400 milligrams twice a day. Uh, and just for a couple of days around the operative period. Um, and again, I might not even need it. It would just really depend on how effective the fashion the alcohol block is, how effective the opioids are. Um, it's easier in my world to treat a bit of sedation than to fairly, yeah. you know? So I'm kind of balancing those two things.
1: Yeah, for sure. The other thing I suppose that, and you've mentioned a couple of different modes of analgesia in that sort of answer. Mm. But the next thing that comes up is. Probably multimodal analgesia and what sort of the understanding is around that and how it's used and why you know in this patient you might consider taking that approach or in any patient
0: it's a really great medical student question because it it kind of underlines this, a principle that we use in some situations but not in others multimodal meaning we're going to we're going to we're going to try and at- approach pain by attacking many of the different mechanisms of pain, um, with many different medications. So what this means is I get better pain relief, but hopefully also limit the side effects of each of them. And you think of all the pain pathways, you've got your prostaglandins from which um, non-steroidals stop with inflammation, opioid receptors, paracetamol, and some curious central action and unknown action, <laughs> yeah. uh, <teratologically> yeah. active, <laughs> like tramadol with adrenaline and descending inhibition in the central pathways. And then even though each of those receptors will have different sites as well. So we're really trying to get pain controlled with multiple receptor actions and then decrease the side effects of each of those. And you'll find this as an example in, uh, I guess multimodal, uh, nausea, vomiting management. Um, but you then, and, and multimodal blood pressure management, but then you don't find it in things like, um, say treating epilepsy. I think you don't want to be trying too many things or antidepressants, like you want to, Lower one and then raise the other because of potential severe uh, uh, interactions between these drugs. So, multimodal is great, but not always used in depending on the circumstance.
1: Yeah. And In terms of sort of that approach to multimodal, and we sort of touched on, I suppose, the WHO analgesic ladder, mm. are there things that you, you know, add first just for a
0: very basic, for a medical student, you know, things that you add first and then build upon? Absolutely. So this is exactly the principles multimodal and the WHO analgesic ladder just shows this stepwise addition of things. So you're not giving too many things and you're not going straight to strong, risky medications when simple, less overall, less risky medications will do. So if I was a medical student, I would definitely use the word multimodal. I'll use the word analgesic ladder and WHO. And then I'd say I'd start with a, with paracetamol and give a dose, one gram oral IV, QID, regular or PRN, depending. Add on the nonsteroidal. These, these, um, simple analogies are easy to add on at the same time and give, again, give whatever you feel like. Ibuprofen, 400 milligrams, TDS, oral. Uh, and then add on the weak opioids, either codeine or tramadol. Most anesthetists would give tramadol, but rarely give it codeine because of the various pharmacokinetic issues with it and pharmacogenetic problems. And then strong opioids. On top of that afterwards and other adjuncts such as your antineuropathics and your clonidines and yeah, uh, a whole bunch of other weird and wonderful drugs. But uh, yeah,
1: that approach. And you of,
0: sorry, go on. Sorry. Yeah. No, you got that approach of you say a principle, you say the drug and then you quickly go for the dose instead of being prompted for it is what we'd like all our trainees, whether medical student or otherwise to do. You're just giving information in this nice story fashion without needing prompting and it shows a level of i know this scenario in its whole context i don't need uh often with the junior trainees we we try we have to try and get information out of them so as a student if you can get information out quickly that seems reasonable to talk about you tell the whole story of the management and then it it just sounds like a better answer uh i mean that's my opinion but I, i see this a lot so in examining
1: Absolutely. And I suppose some advice that you gave to me that I found really helpful is that, you know, taking broad concepts or a broad sort of framework approach. So laying down, as you said, sort of that, I'm going to use multimodal analgesia, I'm going to follow the, you know, WHO ladder, getting those broad frameworks and then filling in your knowledge so that the examiners know that you know what you're talking about. And like you are saying, are aware of the scenario and that you know what's going on and have a sort of systems-based
0: approach that you're going to take into these patients. It's always a difference between saying, I'm going to give paracetamol, saying a dose, I'm going to give this. It's almost like you tell them the destination and then you tell them the specifics. So they already know you've got the answer and they can move on quickly if they're, if they're not examining on the dose of ibuprofen. So yeah, good strategy, but also yeah, let, let's give them confidence in your knowledge and abilities.
1: The other thing that we mentioned as you were talking about the multimodal analgesia was decreasing those side effects. Mm. of things like opiate medication and the next sort of area that we touched on was you know are there any other drugs that you'd consider prescribing alongside their pain relief and how would you go about that
0: yeah so if we're not talking about extra pain relief medications I'm thinking Mm. of first of all the medical problems that they might have but I just and, and all the drugs I could be giving for, you know, high blood pressure and, you know, g- generally supplementing vitamin D for elderly patients and checking their blood levels and giving them, you know, iron and stuff like that. But let's say we're not talking about any of those general medical things. I'm thinking about the the drug and its side effects and how I'm going to manage those side effects that are unwanted. So, opioids are the easy one to think about. Opioids can often cause nausea and constipation. So, everyone gets at least two antiemetics. On Dastron 4 milligrams TDS oral IV, Maxilon, 10 milligrams oral IV, TDS PRN as well. And then laxative. Everyone gets lactulose 20 mils BD as a tool softener and also Cloxin Center to tablets, BD, PRN. Um and the the rule there is every patient must pass the bowels at least once a day. Uh, and if not, you need to sort that out because you know, having a bowel obstruction due to opioids and treatment is just not. You just you don't you don't let that happen on your ward. I'm trying to think. And do you think that's information that you volunteer as part
1: of your answer? Sort of, we talked about that framework and knowing the final destination. When you talk about prescribing those drugs, do you think it's useful to sort of consider that co-prescribing?
0: Yeah, uh, yeah. Like, I I mean, as as a junior doctor, you'll be writing out lots and lots Mm. of drugs. Every time you write an opioid down, straight away it goes into writing the laxatives and the, and the um, anti-medics. And that, and that's saving your time because guaranteed some percentage of patients will then need it. And not only will the patient have a delay in receiving the medication, but your nurse has to call you and take your time, which is so limited as an intern and junior doctor. Um, and then worse worse than that, imagine it's overnight. The patient waits for longer and they call your mate on night cover with a hundred jobs to do. And that was the worst thing. Like we had a really good team when I was doing nights where Everyone was so thorough. I can't remember ever really getting asked to write up anti medicine appearance in a ho- hospital I trained. People were so on it um, because we know that covering, you know, making sure you're thorough means that you're not having to cover other people's, um, you know, things that they've admitted. Um, yeah. And then, and actually things like non paracetamol, there's no real major side effects of that, but non-steroidals, let's say someone does get gastritis or has already some level of gastritis, but you really want to give non-steroidals. An advanced technique, which I don't suggest for everyone to do, would be to give a, a, a very cautious dose of non oils plus, um, uh, you know, a PPI like Nexium, Esomeprazole, um, as well. Uh, and that just kind of harm minimizes things may, maybe. That's probably
1: the first scenario I covered really well and focusing sort of on that pain management. Cool. Um, so the second scenario mm. that we went into was around sort of a patient who's got a high BMI and sort of some anaesthetic considerations there. So you know, imagine you're a resident on your anaesthetic rotation um, and you started to anaesthetise a 50-year-old female um, for an elective uh, total laparoscopic uh, cholecystectomy. She's mm-hmm. otherwise well, but as I sort of said, she's got a BMI of 40. Mm-hmm. Um, so what would be, I suppose, some... Or did you want to talk about what you're sort of thinking right off the bat with
0: these patients? Exactly. So I I think of, um, I go through this in some of my lectures of like a summary statement or how you present cases to your boss. When I think of this, I think age, gender, which is, you know, they've already given that. So what is it like a 50-year-old female? So 50-year-old female, elective or urgent. So there's an elective lap coli. So elective procedure. Is it high or low risk, generally speaking? And so this is a relatively low risk procedure because it's just a lap coli in a patient who's obese i then identify the critical issues so uh uh so in this case like we, a bmi 40 patient means that i've got certain increased risk of the anesthetic maybe the airway and maybe the operation for the surgeon as well um and then the advanced stuff i might think which isn't so relevant in this is who else do i need to contact specialist wise um and probably no one at this point unless they had like diabetes or some other issue um, and what center do I do this in? And this would be done in any, you know, tertiary center or even, even a non tertiary center. It'd be totally safe to do it in that center. So just to recap, I'd, I'm thinking of a quick summary age, gender. So there's a 50 year old female having an elective, relatively low risk operation, the major issues being the high BMI, which could have some operative issues and some uh, anesthetic issues, especially with a high BMI and having an airway and having the appropriate abdominal pressures and, um, and things like that. Yeah. So that's probably how I'd start.
1: Yeah. And I think you've touched on probably some of them already, but Mm. what are those anaesthetic considerations that you would make in this patient? So, before you provide any sort of anaesthetic, what would you do in terms of a pre-op assessment? What are you asking patients? How would you approach
0: that? Oh, great. Yeah. So, always think pre-operative, intra-operative, post-operative. So, pre-operative specifically, I'll do my full anaesthetic assessment, but specifically with a patient who's got a high BMI. So, again, I'm doing all the usual stuff which I'm not going to go through unless they ask me, but I will mention that I'm going to kind of think about it. Usual anesthetic assessment, but I'm specifically concerned about the obesity issues. And now you've got to think, oh my God, obesity means so many things. As a medical student, it's going to be hard to just outline this. I reckon having just an approach where you think about everything that could happen uh, in an obese patient. So first of all, I'm thinking um, general medical stuff. Uh, what is the actual weight and can the hospital even... You know, deal with that weight in this, in this patient. Maybe they're really short, really large, or maybe they're six foot and, you know, it, the weight isn't too bad. Well, whatever it is, the BMI is 40. It's going to be pretty high. I'm thinking what happens with large patients? Difficulty positioning, difficulty getting access for lines and blood pressure cuffs might not fit and you need s- different, different size cuffs. I'm thinking metabolic syndrome type stuff, diabetes. Maybe they're going to increase heart disease. Maybe they have OSA and worse yet. Obesity hyperventilation syndrome. So I'm thinking of all the medical conditions. I'm going to be, you know, uh, you know, assessing them for sever- severity, st- stability. Are they treated? Um, and what are any problems of the treatments that they've already had? So that's my framework for that. Um, and then I'm thinking operatively, it's a longer operation. So, you know, I might have to, uh, you know, plan for that. Maybe give some more fluid. Maybe, um, just make sure I've got enough pain management afterwards. Make sure positioning is absolutely, pr- um, you know, proper. So they don't have any pressure areas and pressure sores. I'm thinking DVT prophylaxis. I'm thinking increased dose of everything, but especially antibiotics and redosing if it's a longer operation. Um, and then, yeah, I'm thinking airways. So often airways don't have to be difficult, but depending on the airway examination, it could be very challenging. Um, respiratory mechanics as well um, with patients who are obese, the decreased functional residual capacity, decreased oxygen store, difficulty. It's like an obstructive ventilation pattern so restrictive ventilation, higher airway pressures. A lot of things are more difficult just because of the obesity. So I've just kind of done, I've tried a little bit of a framework and I've just given lots of issues that may come up as I've thought about them. And I think it'd be hard as a medical student to just think of all those things, but I think giving some of those things shows that you're looking at obesity in a kind of a holistic way.
1: Yeah, I think so. And in terms of that sort of, framework. Mm. It sounds like you were vaguely breaking it down into sort of patient factors, anesthetic factors, surgical factors. Yeah. If you were gonna, you know, take a broad approach. Do you think that sort of
0: works for I, yeah, of that sort of question? I, I probably stretched it a bit far in like I think you specifically asked me preoperative. Mm, so I probably yeah. should have just mentioned you know the usual stuff and then extra medical issues they might have and my airway assessment. And then definitely intro introp I should have then go on to patient, surgical, and intra- and anesthetic factors. So I think yeah, using those categories would definitely help. And I probably stretched my answer out in the intro in the preoperative phase.
1: No, that's all right. Um, I think the next thing that sort of we talked about in the examination was how you'd assess a patient's airway. Do you have a
0: good approach? Yeah, beautiful. But how do you like to tackle this one? Every airway assessment, like any other assessment is history, examination, investigation. And it's interesting because no matter what examination findings you find, like malampati, Patty, whatever, it's the previous history of airway grade. That's the most predictive of future difficulty. So I would look, I'd look at the previous ancestor records. What was the airway? What was used to manage this airway? What's the bag mass difficulty, LMA difficulty, intubation difficulty in grade? And that would be my gold standard. And then I would do an airway assessment. Maybe this patient hasn't had uh, management in a long time. So I'm going to do you know, general inspection, mouth opening, mal and paddy, distance, neck extension, jaw protrusion, um, and any other. And that's probably the main test that I'd do. This patient on, after examination probably wouldn't need any investigations. Now, the most important thing that a lot of medical students won't realize is after doing a, a good history and examination, then the way you formulate your answer is not about the actual um, data points that you found on examination or history. It's, I think this I would then try to figure out whether this patient was going to be a difficult bag mask, LMA, or intubation. And that's the way I always think about it. No matter what my findings are, I think about it in terms of how I'm going to achieve a good airway rather than just looking at a thyromental distance in isolation or a mouth opening isolation.
1: Yeah, I think that's an excellent way of thinking about it, that end result, as opposed to sort of, you know, I'm looking at all of these different factors and working out how that actually will affect my patient and affect how you might go about giving the anesthetic. Yeah. In terms of, that, I suppose they,
0: they are some sorry. And when you and when you think about that, like it's, let's say you do the examination, this kind of advanced stuff, but it's easy enough to learn, so worth thinking about. If you if your consultant asks what the airway examination is and you do it and you find some findings. It, it, you know to to share findings is level one but to synthesize the findings like we're talking about into a result of presumed difficulty of this this or this that shows like a synthesis of knowledge that that's like the next level up and that's what we're trying to get people to learn as they're training to synthesize information and you know put something out that um that their findings have suggested
1: hmm. so in terms of reporting those findings at a final year medical student level, what would you expect someone to say that they look for in an airway assessment?
0: Yeah, I would expect them to say, I'd look at the previous anesthetic record and look for the airway assessment there. I would do a general inspection, mouth opening, melon thyramental distance, the neck extension and jaw protrusion, and obviously looking for dentition problems as well. If you were to do that, I think that's brilliant. Like, Not many medical students will just rattle those six or seven principles off quickly. But if you were to then go, if they gave you some findings and then mm-hmm. you were like oh mouth opening is two centimeters and then you were to say wow logically that's going to be hard to put the laryngoscope in and lma is going to be hard to put down um if the mal- paddy is a grade three or four that shows overcrowding maybe intubation is difficult then um maybe bag masking will be difficult because there's overcrowding if you start taking the findings and synthesizing them that is almost registrar level um and it's just the fact that you haven't done much anesthetics as a med student that you wouldn't be doing that so Baseline, do the findings, get some results, and hopefully you can logically extrapolate some data to impress the examiners with that.
1: I think that makes a lot of sense and taking all of those findings and synthesizing them, if you can, a great way of going about it. Whether you're at that level or not at a final year medical student, I'll leave that <laughs> up to everyone. But um, right. I guess the next thing I sort of asked was to describe sort of how you'd go about... Assessing a Malin Patty and how that grading system works. I'm not sure if you want
0: to talk about that here or whether people can go and look that I up. What? I've actually, so, I'm going to put a little ad for my ABCs of Anesthesia Foundations mm-hmm. course. Um, so all of the stuff that we're going through here, I've got a, a foundation course with a full online course where I, I literally go through all the basics of anesthetics. Like this is for my quick care residents doing their, or, or anyone doing their first six to 12 months of anesthetics. But I've got to say, it's not complex stuff. If you just, you know, learn it at any stage, it will be useful. So I'll just put a link in, you know, in, in this video for that. Um, and potentially a link is already there at the start of this video because that's how I've edited it. So, yeah, that, that would be where I'd say go look at the airway stuff in that in that course and you'll see all the things you know about Mel Patty. But I won't, yeah, not not worth going through in too much detail now. You can just look it up. Yeah, sounds great. So I suppose, yeah, they asked us about Mel and Patty and they asked
1: us about sort of your view on direct laryngoscope and how you then assess those things, if people were wanting to go and read up on those, I think it'd be a really useful oh, thing to So do.
0: they asked you, mm. did they show you a grade? A, 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 but they said, how would you grade a laryngoscopic view of the vocal cords? I'll
1: yeah, so basically
0: describe
1: what you would see on direct view for, you know, cochrane Lahane? Is that Yeah, C- Cormac Lihahane? So Cormac Lahane, um, sorry, I butchered uh, that, but yeah, yes, Lohane. how you would look and what you would say at each grade of that.
0: Beautiful. And and again, so yeah, have a look at the diagrams I've got in the course, or even just um Google Cormac Lehane uh C-O-R-M-A-C-K-L-E-H-A-N-E. Have a look at that. And they love asking questions like yeah what do you see when you're down there and or you know you're putting a spiral in what are the layers you go through people love asking those very simple things but they actually complicated because you haven't thought about it <laughs> so the, at, at the base level you describe the, the base of the tongue the follicular the vocal cords that's the base that's the minimal and if you really were about to impress someone you talk about the area epiglottic falls the true cause of false cause the uh, you know the corniculin and the um Oh, my God, The and the kidney form, uh, cartilage and maybe the arotenoid cartilage, depending on the view. So, you could go to a different level of that, but at a medical student level, tongue, uh, molecular and epiglottis and vocal cords would be fine.
1: Yeah, no, that sounds excellent. And I would encourage people to go and look that up. I think it's a very fair question to get asked on this sort of examination. Yeah. Um, so... Bearing all of that in mind and having done your airway assessment and all of those sorts of things, what sort of anaesthetic would you use in this patient um, and sort of why and what type of airway device?
0: Yeah. So, what sort of anaesthetic? This would be a, a relaxed and general anaesthetic. So, when they ask that question, it's such. A, it seems like a broad question, but really, are you going to do a GA or regional or sedation? is always a GA. Are you going to need paralysis or not? Because there's intracavery surgery, you always need paralysis to optimize your surgical view. Otherwise, the muscles contract with the pneumoperitoneum. And then most, and, and then do you need to put in a tracheal tube or an LMA or nothing? And because of the high pressures and a few other reasons, you, you need to put a tube in for this. So relaxant general anesthetic with a tube is my anesthetic. Um, the specifics of that, I think, so, you know, how would you do your answer? You can get into a lot of detail with this, but you could essentially say, assuming the airway isn't too much of a problem, I would still use a video laryngoscope to optimize my first best view. And it's such a common device these days. I think that's the extra thing you'd do because you're worried about the BMI making the airway more difficult, maybe. So I might just add on to that. And the advanced thing you could say, which again, medicalism wouldn't know is, because they are potentially a difficult bag mask ventilation solely from looking at the BMI being high, I would give a fast acting muscle relaxant because that would make my bag masking and intubating conditions optimized. Advanced stuff, but just think of the, if your muscles are like tight in a large patient, it's harder to manage an airway. If you paralyze them, it becomes nice and loose and the airway is a lot easier to manage. Again, advanced level stuff, but that would be the extra thing I'd mention. And I'd use rock at a high dose. Or succinomethonium. And what about for the anaesthetic itself? What sort of agents would you look at? Yeah, great. So I'd run these patients mainly on volatile anaesthetics So uh, maintenance with volatile, induction with propofol. Um, so I'm thinking hypno the triad: so hypnosis, mm-hmm. analgesia, muscle paralysis, and then the extra things, which is antiemetics, antibiotics, DVT prophylaxis, and long term analgesics. So those that's the way I kind of think about the main drugs. So Profile induction, maintenance with SIBO titrated dose of fentanyl throughout the case, um, and then muscle paralysis with the rock uranium I gave at the start with incremental doses depending on recovery of muscle function. I'd give two antimedics at least, providing there's no postoperative nausea vomiting other risk factors. I would give DVT prophylaxis at, you know, in a high BMI patient, 0.5 milligrams per kilogram subcut uh, as per the surgeons. I'd give two grams or more uh, if, if they're above 120 Ks of uh, kefazolin. Um, and then I'd give all my post-op laxatives, antimedics and analgesics after that as well.
1: Sounds excellent to me. Um, <laughs> I think that was probably pretty much all that we covered in that scenario. Is there anything else that you think is really worth going over
0: in this sort of patient? Or We're definitely going over can, this yeah. at a reasonably high level. Like This is mm-hmm. me talking kind of registrar level yeah. stuff. But again, uh, once you've heard it and once you see some patterns, it's not too difficult to add this on. So you imagine you go into your medical student viva, don't get intimidated by this conversation, um, but just know, oh, assessment of airway, history examination, investigation, and learn some data points. Um, how do you do this anesthetic? Oh, good. I'm going to say it's a general regional, paralysis or none, ETTO or LMA. Easy three things to talk about instead of getting lost in other detail. Um, What type of medications are you giving? Great. My framework is at hypnosis, um, paralysis, analgesia. And that's, if you said that, fantastic. And if you want to get extra pu- marks, you go, oh, what are the A's? Antibiotics, antiemetics, extra analgesia, and then the D, DVT prophylaxis. So these little frameworks that I've just got inbuilt in me mean that I can give these answers pretty well. And Look, I suspect that most, if you ever get a prize exam in anesthesia as a medical student, you will get scenarios like this. There's a, uh, what is it, Uh, pain stuff, anesthetic plan stuff, and uh, what we're going to go through the doctor's ABCD one.
1: Yeah, I think that covers that
0: really well. Uh, And those were
1: fantastic approaches. The last scenario, as we sort of were saying, is focused around sort of an A to A and assessment of an unwell patient. So the scenario was you're an intern, you're on sort of evening ward call and your met pager goes off. Um, You arrive at the scene, you happen to be the first responder. Um, You have a chat with the ward nurse and she sort of says to you, thanks for coming. Um, This is Anne. She's, you know, 69 years old. Uh, She had a vaginal hysterectomy around two days ago. Um, She's now tachycardic and she's also hypertensive. So, her blood pressure is only 80 on 55. Mm. How would you
0: approach this patient and what would be some things that you'd be looking out for and be worried about? Yeah, great. So, uh, as we were talking about this before, I really like the fact that you knew straight away this is now stabilisation of a sick patient, which is doctor's ABCD. It's not history examination investigation. So, this is This is a patient who's really unwell and having a potentially life-threatening incident occurring. I would immediately call a MET or Code Blue if I I thought I need it. And I'd get someone to contact a surgeon because they're a surgical patient. Knowing that they've had a vaginal hysterectomy means that suddenly I've got a whole bunch of really serious differentials that not only need treating, but the treatment is not just easy stuff. It's like I need to get theater organized. So I'm already flagging that whilst I'm about to do the doctor's ABCD. So there's my first kind of summary statement, uh, and then framework. I'll do a doctor's ABC approach, and most importantly, this is, looks like a cardiovascular problem. So I will, you know, go through airway, look, listen, but make sure the airways patent. Breathing, look, listen, and feel. Provide oxygen, get the monitoring on, and sort those things out and treat them symptomatically. But I'm really focused on this uh, on the on the cardiovascular system. I'll look at the monitor, look at why the are tachycardic. If it's um, sinus tachy or or a primary. Uh, ventricular atrial tachycardia and recheck the blood pressure and as well assess the fluid status i am most worried now so i'm n- now seeing my most worried statement so that i've i've done this whole thing where i come in and do safety stuff which is get help and provide oxygen and give some fluids put a drip in and some basic things like that take a gas take blood you know group and hold um uh, and uh, and a cross match so that's my phase one safety stuff. My stabilization is I'd give fluids um, and I'd um, try to optimize this patient as any intern could. Um, And then my phase three and four is diagnostics and treatment. So before I do that, I go, this is is really concerning for a post-operative bleed because they've had a vaginal hysterectomy or sepsis would be the other thing or a DVT. So I'm thinking about a few things, but I'm most worried about the uh, bleed. So how am I going to sort that out? Looking at the drain tube, looking at the fluid status, looking at the size of the stomach, um, checking the surgical notes and then contacting the surgeon to come immediately to assess the patient and taking, giving some fluid and taking a venous gas to get a HP result. That's how I'm going to sort that one out. Sepsis, take a temperature. Um, DVT, look at the calves, look at whether they've had DVT prophylaxis, um, and what other past history would make this an increased risk. So for example, vaginal hysterectomy for um, a cancer would increase your risk of a DVT. So I'm kind of flagging these major problems, but really I still need to get this patient treated. I would talk about giving the fluid, taking the results, giving more fluid, um, and then seeing how this patient was with the result of that. And depending on how they're going, I would probably try to get them to ICU or to or to you know theater because they potentially need more intensive care depending on what the results of what I did was. It's an, you're an intern. So you're probably not going to get, be giving metaraminol, but I'd be saying, look, I'd be considering giving a small dose of safer anticholers like metaraminol. Again, that's not intern-level stuff, but you'd it'd be nice to be aware of that, and then get a senior staff member to help you with that.
1: I think that's a really comprehensive approach to an A to E, and probably above what we'd be at. But I think excellent, as you said, sort of to have all those data points available when you go to sit these exams. Mm. Um, any A to E, I think. It, Pretty much just practice. It's a it's a framework. If you go over this over and over again, and before your OSCEs, do them with other people, and just go through all the motions of actually, mm. you know, examining the patient and mm. you know, going through your A to E, um, they become really, really easy sort of stations to go through because it is so well structured.
0: I would almost correct myself because I reckon if I was a medical student doing doing this, I probably would have done it differently. I would. Okay. I'd look for danger and put some personal protective equipment on. R check for response, make sure they're speaking to me. Shot, you know, pain, voice, AVPU scale. Uh, send for help, which you've already done. And then, because there's probably marks for going through it, I, I just did it very briefly. I said airway, look, listen. But airway, look, listen. Check for patency, uh, breathing, look, listen, feel. Respiratory, auscultate, tracheal deviation, effort of breathing, saturations, provide oxygen. And you're getting marks as you're going. At the very advanced level, and more advanced I was with the way I said it I'm quickly yeah. going through A and B. I know C is the problem, so I'm not going to fluff around with A and B, whereas I think as a medical student, what you said, Max, was definitely you need to go through it and have practiced it beforehand, so it's nice and fluent. you're, you're doing it pretty efficiently, and even getting to disability, GCS, pupils, m- gross motor power, and then exposure, exposure to patient, you know t- top to toe assessment and uh, temperature as well. Yeah. yeah having in the back of your mind sort of as you were
1: saying when those issues arise in each if you find an issue with an airway treat that and then move on and move through your framework as you go but yeah it it evolved in sort of that way so Mm -hmm. airway you know look listen feel is it patient are they talking to me but overall the scenario eventually came to the stage where you realize oh this patient is in atrial fibrillation The next question they asked is how does that
0: explain her hypotension? Great. So this is a real physiological question. Atrial fibrillation is a fibrillation of the atrius. And now you don't have the atrial kick, which often provides up to 30% of your stroke volume from your ventricle pumping out. So not having that means that now I've lost part of my stroke volume, which theoretically then decreases my cardiac output and decreases my blood pressure, especially if the, especially if, uh, the atrial the you know the atria is now con- fibrillating uncontrollably and the electrical activity goes really quickly to the ventricle now my ventricle's going fast it's not filling enough and it's just not pumping effectively so there's my pathophysiology of atrial fibrillation high ventricular rate low cardiac output equals low blood pressure
1: yeah sounds good to me um so that physiological response understanding how that all feeds through to ending up with a hypertension was how they were sort of expecting us to go through that. Yep. And then they moved on to what are the most sort of common causes of atrial fibrillation?
0: Yeah. And, and this is such a broad question when I think about it. So I would probably try to think of this system by system. Uh, there's a few, th- the few ways you can do causes of anything. Cause of anything could be caned it or system by system so caned it is congenital autoimmune neoplastic endocrine drug infection trauma and i might think about that but this one atrial fibrillation i'm thinking more system by system because cardiovascular things you know is cardiac ischemia um can cause it um having uh, any kind of problems with um oxygen delivery hemoglobin delivery electrolyte abnormalities around there, um ph problems lo- electrolyte states you know low calcium or sodium even low potassium, low magnesium can all predispose to atrial fibrillation. So I'm thinking about the cardiac stuff, pneumonias and infections in the lung can cause atrial fibrillation. Thyroid problems can cause it. Pheochromocytoma, endocrine things can cause it. Um, even neuro- neurological abnormalities causing increased sympathetic outflow. So what I'm doing there is systematically going through and giving a spattering of kind of things that might cause it. Um, and then I mentioned the candid So I'm thinking, you know, infection could be one of those things trauma to the heart but that's not happening in this vaginal hysterectomy case um and yeah drugs as well so i I think i've really used the candid and system by system approach to try and merge it into a whole bunch of differentials i can go through quickly um to try and say that i'm going to look for these and i'm going to treat them to make sure that i i'm not just treating af with you know rate rhythm and uh, anticoagulation i'm thinking of the cause as well first
1: I think probably a great way of approaching any problem like this, if you're asked what are the causes of X, to have that systems based approach and then, you know, also how any other things might have contributed. I suppose for, for us in medical school, we learned um, Mrs. Smith has atrial fibrillation. I'm not sure if you're familiar with no, that. i going to
0: heard that. Go for it.
1: So ignore the misses. That's fine, leave that. And then Smith, so spell that one out. So S is for sepsis, as you are sort of saying, infection can cause atrial fibrillation. M for any mitral valve pathology. Um, I, ischemic heart disease, so those issues with blood supply to the heart or AMI. Um, T for your thyroid, so thyrotoxicosis could potentially lead to atrial fibrillation and H, hypertension. um, And I suppose within that, you know, that's a more chronic long-term cause. But those were suggested to us certainly as the five sort of common things that if you can remember you they're easy to rattle off in an OSCE or in this sort of exam. If you completely blank on a systems approach and having a better structure of going through it, if you can remember those, at least you've got something to say.
0: That's good. It's not exhaustive, but it gives a probably high percentage thing in in an exam. It's worth saying, look, I think of sepsis um, my my cal- mitral valve stuff, ischemia, thyroid, and um, hypertension as a long term cause, I think. Mm. Um, good. And then if you're wrong about that with that gambit, I'd say it would be called, um, then you can go through it. Yeah, and like that. But yeah no, I like that, Max. That's sim- simple stuff to get the high yield things quickly, I think is a really great strategy. So the
1: case evolved from here. Um, and the next thing they sort of talked about was. Your Met team eventually arrives. Please provide an appropriate handover. Do you have a
0: way that you like medical students to give you a handover? I mean, this is one of the most important questions that I would have little personal input into because it's a national standard. As soon as you get a national standard for something, the you know, university definitely wants you to do a very specific way of doing it. And this is, as we both know, it's is bar. Identify or identification, situation, background assessment, and request. Now, in real life, I've got to say often if you're referring to a consultant, I mean, there's my, I think this is my pretty good opinion about this, but apologies if it isn't. Identify great situation. Yes. And then you go straight to the request because then the request frames the background and assessment for the consultant. And sometimes you don't even have to go through the background assessment because the consultant goes, oh yeah, we'll be right over. Like you're not wasting time. Like, you know, say seven, uh, was it 60, 70 uh, year old? female situation is hypertension it's post-vagic two days ago. Please, I, I need you to come and assist with this. I wouldn't even care about the background. I'd be like, yeah, I'm on my way. You know, you can tell yeah. the background while I'm walking. Um that, that's the reason why I put requests in there. But yeah, is bar is definitely the thing you have to absolutely mention and then literally fill in the gaps. Is this Identify myself and the patient. The situation is hypertension post-operatively and uh, my uh what is it that situation background is the past history of the patient. Assessment is my ABCDEs, and again, you've already done that. Request is, I need to help stabilize this patient.
1: And certainly from my experience, that's how consultants like you go through it. It's a bit of a range. Some people like that framing very early on. So I think how I would approach it is if I knew the patient was in atrial fibrillation, after I do my identifying, I say, and we've found that this patient is in atrial fibrillation, or if it was something like a bleed... I'm concerned they have post-surgical bleed. And then everything after that, you know, you've already started firing off for the consultant so that everything they hear is in the context of what you actually think the problem is instead of running through your whole thing and then going, oh, and this is what I think is going on. Mm. Would you say that's a nice way of approaching it or do you like to sort of leave you to make your own conclusions?
0: No, I really like the whole, give me the, it's it's, kind of like give me the end point of what you think it is. And the, you know, and the more senior you are, the more I take that into account, um, because of, you know you're probably more more likely to be right about it. But yeah, so identify it would be a situation, then wouldn't it? Identify this patient. This yeah. situation is, you know, hypertension post post-operative. I think it's due to this. Yes, and yeah. then yeah, then go into your background assessment, uh, which hopefully supports. that. Yeah, i totally agree with that.
1: Yeah. yeah. Thanks heaps for having me. I think that's. That's more or less covered off all the scenarios.
0: Excellent. Um, and that was, yeah, beautiful. And that's, um, yeah, it was just such a great little rundown of just really common topics. Um, yeah, um, uh, w- when do you get feedback about uh, how, how you did in the, in the, in the exam?
1: Um, we'll see. I think there was some suggestion that they might let us know before our graduation ceremony, which yep. is on the 16th of December, cool, cool. but otherwise we find out as a cohort on the 16th.
0: That's really exciting. Um, uh, I mean, yeah, very good luck to you. And, uh, yeah. So what, um, I mean, that's probably comes to the end of it. We've gone through as a summary a f- three different, very common scenarios. I think the frameworks that we talked about are very much in line for any of these frameworks whether it's pain in a fractured femur or pain of a you know any other thing coming to hospital uh and then anesthetic assessment and uh, deteriorating patient i think you yeah, know they're just good principles to think about and and hopefully when you go for your prize exam you can use some of these principles and and this approach to things and again a plug for the anesthesia foundations course because that will that really goes through all of the stuff that i know and everything you need to know in your first 12 months of anesthesia and i, I just keep adding to it so you know i'll, I'll keep putting up little interviews like this um, as well as all the, you know, really relevant information, everything from how to set up your anesthetic ventilator, checking your machine and, um, you know, anesthesia medications and resuscitation. So, yeah, hopefully it's really useful and really supplements all the other stuff you and all the other resources out there for anesthesia. So, yeah. Any any other questions, Max, before we start off? Oh, that sounds fantastic. And I really would recommend everyone, guys,
1: and checks out your course. You guys produce some fantastic content. and. It's one of those specialties that we don't get a lot of teaching around. And, you know, consultants and registrars, from what I've seen, really appreciate it if you've done a little bit of background and have some vague ideas or some questions to prompt conversation. And you might find out that you really enjoy it and it's something that you want to pursue in the future. So I think it's worth putting in a little bit of time.
0: Yeah, beautiful. (laughs) Hey, Max, good luck. And hopefully you do well. And even if not, like you, it's great just getting into the Viver and doing things all about. You know, participation and getting involved and improving. So, um, yeah, thanks for, yeah, thanks for coming on the podcast and and grilling me with your scenarios. That was that was great. <laughs> no worries. Thanks for having me. It was a pleasure. Beautiful. Okay, so um, everyone, uh, yeah, please share with share this with anyone who might be interested. This is here from ABC's Anesthesia, and yeah, we'll see every, see everyone next time.